Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host, Carrie Parker. Today we have episode 262 for March 7th, 2022. And this week marks the fifth anniversary of the podcast. I can't believe I've been doing this for five years. Uh, I started this on March 8th, 2017. And for those of you not familiar with the history, uh, just briefly, since it's <laughs> since it's kind of the podcast birthday, I'll, I'll, I'll go over just a little bit. This all started because somebody invited me on their podcast. They had sort of a surveillance-oriented, I think that, gosh, the name of the podcast was like George Orwell 2084 or something like that. You know, so it was about surveillance, and somehow this guy got my name, and he invited me to come on his podcast. And I ended up going back for a second interview with him, and then, like a month or two later, the guy's like, I'm stopping my podcast, I'm quitting, and I need to pass it on to someone else which I'll explain in a minute. And he was interested whether or not I might want to take over his podcast. I'd never thought of doing anything like that before. And, you know, and so I thought it over and, and, uh, I was still a software engineer at the time and still making money, which was important because the way this works is I was part of a podcasting network. And, and when I looked into it, the network actually was pretty, political, like very political. And, you know, so that was kind of off-putting. And because uh, as you know, by now, I try to avoid politics when I talk about this stuff, because I don't think it's political. But, you know, so I talked to the owner of the network, and he's like, oh, yeah, we should definitely do it. And, uh, you know, we like all viewpoints. And, uh, you know, so we'd like you to take over. Well, so this was a profit thing. So I had to pay to be a part of this network. And not an insignificant amount of money, you know, so that was important that I was still making money because I was going to have to pay to be part of this. And the way this works with everybody else on the network is they would get sponsors and those sponsors would pay them money and they would get to keep most of that money. And so for them, they still end up making money, but they had, you know, they had commercials. So I totally owned only the network. I didn't want to do that. And anyway, long story short, I did it. I did do it. It was very expensive for a while. And I finally just had to say, look, I, I'm just going to go on my own. I've I've done this long enough now that I felt comfortable with the whole mechanics of, you know, making a podcast. And I also felt that I could do the parts they were doing for me, which was, you know, all the editing and adding of music and all that kind of stuff. I figured, you know, surely I was up to that task. And I'm really glad I did. I'd, I'll have to look back and see when I did that. But it was, I don't know, I, was, I did it for over a year that way. And then I went broke off on my own. And I'm really glad I did. Anyway, so here I am uh, on my own, been doing it for five years now. So I want to do a really big promotion for this to celebrate the fifth anniversary. I will get into all the details of that, but basically I'm going to give away a whole bunch of fun stuff. So uh, stay tuned after the news and I will go through all of those details. All right, so we have a news show for you today. And before I get into the specifics of what we're going to cover, I want to just say a couple general things. So obviously we're all focused on the war in Ukraine and uh, it's horrible but I wanted, I wanted to bring that topic to privacy and security. So let, let's, let's think about what's going on there. Think about how important encrypted communications are right now in Ukraine. I know that, you know, use of, you know, apps like Signal and Telegram have definitely spiked recently, obviously due to the war and people not wanting their communications to be intercepted by the enemy, in this case, you know, Ukrainians not wanting their private messages being intercepted by Russian intelligence or military. But it's a real cautionary tale for all of us because, I mean, think about it. U Ukraine was a free and independent democracy for 30 years. And in the blink of an eye, the government may be overrun with a hostile foreign power. One that would, you know, not balk at surveilling and punishing 
its residents. And then, you know, think about that if that was in your country. (laughs) Understand that not only all your current messages and emails and social posts and location and other information could be accessed, not just the current stuff, what's happening now, but also all the historical stuff, because that's how it works. These companies save that data. And so, you know, if you're in Ukraine and you're worried about that sort of stuff, also now all of a sudden you're thinking, you know, my gosh, you know, have I said something negative about Russia? Who did I say it to? Have I post pictures of myself and my family? Did those pictures contain GPS metadata or any other identifying location information? You know, all of a sudden, you know, all this stuff that we blithely post, you know, all over the place and information that's collected that we don't ask to be collected all of a sudden becomes really important. And it all changed basically overnight. All right, so point one, point two. We're at a really different era now. For all the similarities this has to the early days of World War II, when Germany started to invade its neighbors, back then, we, for one thing, we didn't have nuclear weapons. I mean, not, not at the beginning of World War II anyway. And now that we do have them, it's well understood, at least among the major nuclear powers of the planet, that starting a nuclear war is going to be bad for everybody. They would call it mutually assured destruction. So, you know, while you have the capability, you've got to realize that if you use that capability, it's going to go poorly for everybody, not just the people involved in the war, but basically the entire planet. And now that kind of nuclear option also exists with the internet. Our world is hyper-connected. And it is assumed at this point, kind of like with nuclear weapons and mutually assured destruction, it's basically assumed, I think, on all sides that all the major cyber actors on the planet have probably infiltrated the networks and computer systems of all the rest of the world. I mean, so espionage happens all the time. Our intelligence agencies are constantly poking and prodding Uh, into those of others, including, by the way, you know, countries that you would certainly call allies. It's just kind of this unspoken thing. It's espionage, right? It's everyone does it. And then in the computer era, that means that everyone is, you know, poking and prodding at each other's computer networks. And, you know, I'm sure that there are some treaties on that, but certainly between, you know, Russia and Ukraine, the United States, North Korea, Iran, you know, and all the other, you know, major five eyes and 14 eyes countries. One of the main things that prevents massive cyber war where certainly bad things can happen is the fact, or at least the assumption that you are vulnerable as well. And so whatever you dish out, you better be able to take it in return. So basically mutually assured hacking. So anyway, because of what's going on, some of the stories we're going to cover today certainly involve the ongoing conflict in Europe. And I just kind of wanted to put those two thoughts in your brain as, as we're reading these articles today. So news articles, I'm going to, I only have a few, but one of them's kind of long. So we'll spend some time on that. And then I'll get to the tips of the week. So first of all, we're going to talk about a massive security vulnerability in over a hundred million Samsung phones that hopefully has been fixed at this point, but was just really bad and has some lessons to be learned. We're going to talk about how some hackers hacked into NVIDIA corporate systems, got a hold of some of their data and is holding it for ransom and trying to use that leverage to get NVIDIA to unhobble its super high-performance GPUs to allow them to mine cryptocurrency. 
And then the Conti ransomware gang, uh, based in Russia, uh, has been hacked by some someone in the Ukraine, it looks like, and their source code has been leaked, and a whole bunch of communications. Also, somebody managed to hack and download and leak on purpose details on supposedly 120,000 Russian troops that are part of the invasion force. And the Senate just passed a cybersecurity bill forcing organizations to report their cyber attacks and ransomware payments. Uh, And that was accelerated, certainly, by the elevated risk of cyber warfare due to the European conflict. Now, of course, it still has to go to the House and it still has to be signed by the president, but I think this has got to sail right through. And then finally, I've got a longer article that I'm going to read today uh, from a paper from the ACLU about this company called Flock. And it has nothing to do with Google's Flock. But this company has this artificial intelligence system of mass surveillance that is really troubling. And so uh, we're going to spend a little time on that one. And then finally, we're going to do the tip of the week. I've been realizing as I've been doing this series of articles on de-Googling my life and passing along what I've learned to you guys that I missed talking about what the real first step is. You need a strategy. And as part of that strategy, you need to be doing some reconnaissance. So uh, I'm going to back up and we're going to cover that today in my tip of the week. All right. So lots to get to. Let's get to it. All right. First up, uh, this is an article from CPO Magazine. I saw it actually several places, but I, I like the way they wrote this up. And this is going to get into some technical details. Don't worry about it too much. I'll, I'll kind of, as usual, talk a little bit about what some of this stuff means after I get done reading the article. Uh, and it also is going to dovetail well with the interview that we're going to be having next week uh, with somebody from Microsoft. So uh, anyway, let me read this article from CPO Magazine. A recent study demonstrates a severe design flaw at the core of the cryptographic key structure of some 100 million Samsung phones, one that essentially shatters encryption on these devices. The impacted phones are in the Samsung Galaxy series, beginning with the S8 released in 2017 and ranging up to the S21 series released in early 2021. The study claims that the hardware-based cryptographic keys have an encryption process that is trivial to decode due to a predictable algorithm and that it occur- and that it opens the doors to attackers not just for the theft of keys but for bypass of the fundamental security of the phone. The good news is that Samsung has issued a set of two patches for the impacted phones well ahead of a planned presentation of the vulnerability at the upcoming Usenix Security 22 Symposium in August. The patches were apparently sent out in July 2021 after the researchers privately disclosed their findings. The scope of the vulnerability is massive, however, impacting Samsung's line of flagship phones dating back just over five years. The paper, titled Trust Dies in Darkness, Shedding Light on Samsung's Trust Zone Keymaster Design, by a team of researchers from Tel Aviv University, details a means by which attackers can access the device's hardware-based cryptographic keys that not only protect communications, but also handle device security protocols, such as the FIDO2 web authentication standard and the data security for mobile payment services such as Samsung Pay. The issue is with the Trust Zone technology employed in the ARM processor of Samsung phones. The researchers point out that the encryption algorithm is more than adequate, but the phone developers used it in an ineffective way. The impacted Samsung phones essentially make use of a single encryption key, but do not create a new wrapping for each new key instance. The code that generates encryption initialization vectors, the first step in the randomization process, is also chosen by an app layer that is not in Trust Zone's secure area. And I, there's a lot of jargon here. I'll circle back to this when we're done. 
This represents a fundamental failure in terms of how encryption is supposed to work. The hardware layer is supposed to be impenetrable in this way, even with significant effort, much less through a trivial process. This essentially renders Samsung phones in the Galaxy line from 2017 to 2021 completely insecure. And they list here the Galaxy S8, S9, S10, S20, and S21 phones, at least until they're updated by security patches from July 2021 and beyond. The vulnerability requires an attacker to run code on the target device, something that would generally be done via a malicious link or attachment in a phishing message or email. It is also necessary for these Samsung mobile, mobile models to be running Android 9 at a minimum for the patches to work. Android 9 was released in mid-2018 after the Galaxy S8 and S9 hit the market. Those older phones did have windows in which Samsung allowed them to be updated to both Android 9 and Android 10, but Samsung stopped supporting the S8 as of May 2021. While the fault ultimately lies with the phone designers, the researchers say they were influenced by the complete secrecy with which manufacturers Samsung and Qualcomm guard the encryption designs of their hardware. Lacking key information, the designers essentially implemented an unsafe workaround to get the phones running. In the meantime, Samsung phones that are at least on Android 9 and have security updates installed up to August 2021 should no longer be vulnerable. Now, uh, I'm going to break away from this to actually quote one of, one of the guys I'd like to listen to for my podcast, and that's Steve Gibson on Security Now. And he summed this up pretty well, so I thought I would just use that here. And this is what he says. He said, quote, this is classic Crypto 101. The great breakthrough in cryptography came when we switched from proprietary and secret non-keyed encryption algorithms, which scrambled the bits, to public and publicly scrutinized keyed cryptographic algorithms. Make the algorithm public and the keys secret. The same breakthrough principle must also be applied to the wider implementation of these public algorithms. It's clear that the precise way these algorithms are used is every bit as important to the security of the entire system, unquote. Yeah, okay, so uh, let me see if I can kind of back up and cover the, <laughs> cover the technical bits of this. Basically, these phones have at least two different sets of processors running in them. One of them is a secure processor, a very kind of small, focused chip designed to do just security stuff and to do it very well. And then the rest of the system, which can be less secure. And then the idea being that when you need to do something that involves encryption or cryptography or security stuff, you know, passwords and passphrases and keys and all that sort of thing, you dip into this security chip uh, to get those things done and have them all done in a very secure way. And then you carry on with the rest of the stuff in your non-trusted, you know, regular chip area. And that is exactly what we're going to be talking about next week uh, with the Microsoft representative when we talk about their Pluton project. But it sounds like what happened here is that the technology around the secure chip was so guarded and so private that the designers trying to work with it couldn't figure out how it was doing what it was supposed to do and took some shortcuts to make things work that basically completely screwed the whole system because it wasn't public. It was proprietary. And the point that Steve Gibson makes and the point that I want to drive home from this whole article is that security is hard to get right. And like we did, you know, back in the 70s when we came up with public key crypto, which basically allowed us to secure our cryptographic stuff, all our encrypted material using algorithms that were completely public. The algorithms themselves, the way we did things, the way we encrypted things and decrypted things was well known and well understood so that independent third parties, including researchers and other companies and whoever, could 
vet these things, could poke and prod at them and try to get them to break and, and improve them along the way. And that the only part of this that was necessary to keep secret for all of this to work were these keys, which are kind of like passwords. So you've got these secret keys. And as long as you keep these keys secret, it doesn't matter that you know how all the encryption is done. You still can't break it. And basically what Steve is saying and what I'm saying is this, this, this stuff is too important to allow it to be secret. We need to bring this stuff out in the open. And we should basically require that all of these things be you know, brought out to the light of day for, for independent analysis because it's just too important. And the things that we need to differentiate on, the things you need to make your money on, you know, it's things like support and other things that go along with it, but it's just too risky to sit on these things. And another comparison Steve made when he talked about this was voting machines. And it's just too important to not allow the software that runs our voting machines and that our democracy depends on working properly and correctly, not be available for review by third parties. But anyway, the upshot of this, if you have a Samsung phone, one of the ones that we mentioned here is make sure that all the software is up to date. And if you've got an S8 or maybe a late model S9 and you haven't upgraded to Android 9 and maybe can't at this point, uh, (laughs) you're due for a new cell phone. All right, next up, uh, an article from Tom's Hardware uh, about an NVIDIA hack. And NVIDIA is one of the companies that makes... um, GPUs or graphics processing units for computers. These are the things that gamers want to get their hands on because the more powerful GPU you have, the more amazing graphics and things you can do when you're playing video games. But it turns out that because these things are doing massive computations in a short period of time, they're also really good for mining cryptocurrency. And so (laughs) the people who want to mine cryptocurrency are snapping up all of these GPUs as they come on and gamers can't get a hold of them because they're, they're selling out too quickly. And so NVIDIA, what they did to try to address that is they actually put in a governor. If you're familiar with engines at all, they basically hobbled these things so that if it detects that you're trying to do computations that look like cryptocurrency mining computations, the, the hardware, the GPU actually throttles itself to not allow you to do that efficiently with the idea being that they, they don't want crypto miners buying up all these things and preventing them from getting in the hands of gamers. Okay. So anyway, with that as a backdrop, let me read this article. South America based hacking group Lapsus, and that's spelled L-A-P-S-U-S dollar sign is threatening to disclose software and firmware data from NVIDIA's LHR or light hash rate mining performance limiter. The new information gleaned from alleged screenshots from the group's Telegram activity comes hot on the heels of last week's NVIDIA hack, the details of which the company is keeping close to its chest. But the group appears to be confident in the quality of the stolen data, as they've already put up an announcement for the sale of the data that could enable the bypass of NVIDIA's LHR as implemented on the company's GA102 and GA104 chips. Should Lapsus threat come to pass, that would mean that every NVIDIA 3000 series card ranging from the RTX 3060 through the RTX 3090 could be again turned into a 100% mining performance powerhouse. Besides the obvious immediate implications of higher profit rates for already deployed mining systems, it's unclear how this move would affect the graphics card market. Considering how Ethereum's move to proof-of-stake, referred to as the merge, is expected to conclude in the first half of this year, anyone investing in extra cryptocurrency mining hardware, read NVIDIA graphics cards, would have a limited time to make their investment back and actually turn a profit. 
This rings particularly true considering the cryptocurrency market's overall downtrend since the start of last year. And I'll come back to this in a minute and explain some of those, some of those terms again. That could deter many miners from actually doing another run at graphics cards, even as the market slowly returns to normal after more than two years of terrible supply and pricing scenarios. It is, however, interesting that the group is asking NVIDIA to remove the LHR limiter by themselves in exchange for a quote-unquote HW folder of stolen data not being leaked and distributed. Why the group would ask NVIDIA to lift the mining limiter by themselves when the group claims to be selling an unlocker of sorts for most of NVIDIA's RTX 3000 series lineup is unclear and could cast some doubts on the legitimacy of the claims. Lapsus seems to be doing what it can to pressure NVIDIA to the negotiating table, whilst seemingly playing to the approval of the cryptocurrency mining community. The group claims to have stolen one terabyte of sensitive information, including product schematics, driver and firmware data, documentation, private tools, and SDKs, or software development kits. The group claims that it still hasn't been contacted by NVIDIA and have in the meantime distributed part of the stolen data. Sources who have accessed said data have said it matches the group's claims. NVIDIA's continued silence on the matter, saying only it's quote-unquote investigating an incident, isn't the usual corporation response in such cases. Even less so is the purported reverse hack NVIDIA reportedly conducted on Lapsus, where they attempted to ransomware their data back from the group. This has been confirmed by Lapsus, but the group claims to already have copied and backed up the data before the attempted intrusion, rendering NVIDIA's efforts fruitless. This cloak-and-dagger back-and-forth dance between a megacorporation such as NVIDIA and a hacking group isn't par for the course. Perhaps NVIDIA really is taking a long time to assess how exactly this could impact its business. That, in turn, likely means the impact wouldn't be negligible. All right, so th <laughs> there's a lot to unpack there. But again, basically, NVIDIA, the maker of these graphics processing cards that were used for gaming but also used to mine cryptocurrency, puts software on those cards to basically hobble them should somebody try to use them for crypto mining because they were getting tired of all the crypto miners buying up all of their cards and not leaving any for their gamers to buy. But apparently this hacking group hacked in, stole a bunch of NVIDIA's data, and now is demanding that NVIDIA take off this hobble in return for, I guess, getting their data back or promising not to release it or whatever. But the other interesting thing about this is as part of this, apparently NVIDIA tried to hack them back with ransomware. I need to read into that some more, but that's just nuts. All right, let's move on. I got plenty to cover today. So uh, this is from Bleeping Computer, an excerpt from Bleeping Computer. And it's about the Conti ransomware gang, which is based in Russia and also covers the TrickBot ransomware gang, uh, also based in Russia, because these groups have come out in support of the Russian government and their invasion of, of Ukraine and basically ticked off a bunch of other hackers. Okay, let me, let me read the article. A Ukrainian researcher continues to deal devastating blows to the Conti ransomware operation, leaking further internal conversations as well as the source of their ransomware, administrative panels, and more. It has been quite a damaging week for Conti after they sided with Russia on the invasion of Ukraine and upset Ukrainian adverts, or affiliates, and a researcher who has been secretly snooping on their operation. And this is a, the actual quote from the Conti team. They posted this somewhere on social media. It says... The Conti team is officially announcing a full support of Russian government. If anybody will decide to organize a cyber attack or any war activities against Russia, we are going to use our all possible resources to strike back at the critical infrastructures of an enemy. So obviously, <laughs> English is not these guys' first language. Back to the article. It says, on Sunday, and this would have been a week ago Sunday, 
a Ukrainian researcher using the Twitter handle at ContiLeaks leaked 393 JSON files, and that's just a type of data file, containing over 60,000 internal messages taken from the Conti and Ryuk ransomware gang's private XMPP chat server. And if you've ever heard of Jabber back in the day, that's where XMPP comes from. These conversations were from January 21st, 2021 through February 27th, 2022, providing a treasure trove of information on the cybersecurity organization, such as Bitcoin addresses, how the gang is organized as a business, evading law enforcement, how they conduct their attacks, and much more. On Monday, the researcher kept leaking more damaging Conti data, including an additional 148 JSON files containing 107,000 internal messages since June 2020, which was around when the Conti ransomware operation was first launched. Conti leaks began releasing more data throughout the night, including the source code of the gang's administrative panel, the Bazaar Backdoor API, screenshots of storage servers, and more. However, a part of the leak that got people excited was a password-protected archive containing the source code for the Conti ransomware encryptor, decryptor, and builder. While the leaker did not share the password publicly, another researcher soon cracked it, allowing everyone access to the source code for the Conti ransomware malware files. While this is good for security research, the public availability of this code does have its drawbacks. As we saw when Hidden Tier and Babook ransomware code was released, threat actors quickly co-opted the code to launch their own operations. With code as tight and clean as the Conti ransomware operation, we should expect other threat actors to attempt to launch their own criminal operations using the leaked source code. What may be more helpful, though, is the bizarre backdoor APIs and TrickBot command and control server code that was released, as there is no way to access that info without having access to the threat actor's infrastructure. As for Conti, we'll have to wait and see if this quote-unquote data breach has much of an impact on their operation. This has been a significant reputational blow for the group that may cause affiliates to move to other ransomware operations. And unfortunately, there are several. But like all businesses, and there is no denying Conti is run like a business, data breaches happen all the time. Now, Brian Krebs, who does a great blog on security called Krebs and Security, has a whole bunch of really long articles on this. So if you're really interested in this and all the information that was leaked, in particular analyzing all the communication data, he's already got three articles in a series of long articles about this. So I put those links in the show notes if you want to look at that, uh, but I'm not going to get into all that here. But basically, this ransomware gang itself was hacked. And while the upside is, is it may help some victims of this software gang maybe get some data back. The downside is, is all the things that these guys used to do what they're doing, and apparently they were quite good at it, have been made public as well, so that other ransomware gangs may pick those up and run with them and use them for themselves. But all of this was precipitated, apparently, by Russia invading Ukraine. And these hacker gangs, and I, I heard somewhere recently that like 70%, 75% of all ransomware attacks originate from Russia. These Russian gangs, which you know most of us assume are somehow affiliated with you know, Russian you know intelligence agencies or Russian government, or at least given sanction by them and protection by them, came out publicly you know backing Russia. Surprise, surprise, and drew the ire of a bunch of security researchers and hackers who fought back. So again, kind of the theme I'm getting at here is that warfare today is a different beast, very different, certainly than what happened in World War II. And while you can maybe think of nuclear warfare now as kind of you know similar in terms of countries being able to unleash mass damage at other countries, cyber warfare is a whole different beast. And not just cyber warfare, but the fact that everybody is connected now. That was not true, you know, in World War II. When, you know, if you wanted to get information out, you had to basically bomb people with leaflets or try to do it over the radio waves. 
the internet is by design really hard to shut down. It was meant to be highly redundant and very resilient in terms of, you know, lines getting cut or systems going down. But it turns out that that same forethought in the design has also made it very robust in times of war. And information is a huge, huge advantage. And being able to attack somebody remotely from any place on the planet through networks and to be able to do it in such a way that it's actually often very hard to trace makes things really different now. It's a very different world we're living in. And we're seeing some interesting aspects of that that I'm not sure a lot of people were thinking about. And here's another one. So this article is from the register and it's from last Wednesday. It says Ukrainian news website, Ukrainska Pravda, and I may have pronounced that wrong, said the nation's center for defense strategies think tank has obtained the personal details of 120,000 Russian servicemen fighting in Ukraine. The publication has now shared this data freely on its website. The register and others have been able to fully verify the accuracy of the data from the leak. The records include what appears to be names, addresses, passport numbers, unit names, and phone numbers. Some open source intelligence researchers on Twitter said they found positive matches, as did sources who spoke confidentially to the register. Others said they couldn't verify dip sampled data. Rumors swirled on the internet that activists were behind the disclosure. The Ukrainian news agencies said that the personnel records were obtained from quote-unquote reliable sources. Whether or not the database's contents is real, the impact on Russian military morale, knowing that your country's enemies have your personal details and can contact your family if you're captured, killed, or even still alive, won't be insignificant. Former UK Cybersecurity Center, or NCSC chief, Siaran Martin noted in a blog post that even though skeptical of the claims that Russia would wage cyber Armageddon during the invasion will be a surprise at the lack of activity, the online assaults against Ukraine of late represent Russia's, quote, long-standing campaign of cyber harassment of the country rather than a serious escalation of it, unquote, he wrote. Martin added that starting a cyber war is far more difficult and comes with far more potential problems than most people outside the InfoSec and IT worlds realize. Another quote from him, he says, quote, even though cyber operations have featured to an unexpectedly small extent in the conflict so far, the West still remains at higher risk of serious disruption, as distinct from catastrophic attack by the cyber domain than it was before the invasion, unquote. Ukraine's digital transformation minister has done perhaps the most exciting thing that will ever happen under the digital transformation banner by calling for a volunteer IT army. And this is a quote from uh, this person, and I will butcher his name, so I'm not going to pronounce it. But he said in this post, he said, quote, we are creating an IT army. We need digital talents. All operational tasks will be given here. And there's a, a link. There will be tasks for everyone. We continue to fight on the cyber front. The first task is on the channel for cyber specialists, unquote. Such a move may provide cover for Russian and Belarusian attacks under a false flag. But while all these machinations are going on, the domestic impact of enterprise IT still appears to be low. UK technology industry sources have whispered to the register of a noticeable uptick in malicious traffic probing their firewalls over the past few days. Although all said they have been taking NCSE guidance on security seriously, one wondered whether this was the calm before the storm. SecureWorks Adams continues, quote, Organizations should realistically assess their operational endurance for a prolonged period of heightened anxiety around cyber attacks. Creating stressed and fatigued teams before any crisis has ever occurred will only lead to poor performance when it matters. Maintain vigilance, but ensure teams are following normal operational work levels as much as possible, unquote. Oh, and there's one more quote from him. He says, quote, 
deprioritize non-critical tasks and ensure staff are prepared, rested, and clear on the process for when a cyber incident does occur. This will be a marathon, not a sprint, unquote. So yeah, I mentioned this already that basically during this time, we should all be on special alert for potential cyber attacks. And that means all of us. I don't just mean your IT departments and your security teams. Every one of us uh, needs to be looking out uh, for this stuff. If you're an employee at a company, especially if your company is part of something important, something that would affect a lot of people, or is connected to companies that could do that because a lot of times hackers will, will go in for the weakest link, right? And they'll find if, if they can go to a supplier and get in through a supplier that allows them to then move on to their real target, they'll do that. Absolutely. Because it, usually those secondary and tertiary companies usually have worse and worse security than the main targets. But also they're looking for just regular people. Uh, They want to find people who have access to the network, who know some passwords and maybe have access to certain computers to trick them into getting infected with malware or by calling or phishing them and giving access to somebody they shouldn't. So this is just a time to be wary. Just be extra careful out there. And I thought this article was really interesting because basically Ukraine is putting out a call not to just nation states, not just to their ally countries and NATO countries for help, for military help and financial help. They're putting out a call to hackers and people who are security experts worldwide to say, here, here's a list of things we'd like you to do uh, from a cyber attack or at least cyber reconnaissance standpoint. And they're asking for help. And because the world is networked the way it is today, it's possible for these people to basically work remotely like we all did during COVID as part of a cybersecurity army for the Ukraine. So anyway, just drawing more attention to how things are different. Warfare is different in the cyber age. All right, one real quick quote here uh, from ZDNet about a Senate bill that just passed here in the U.S. It says, The U.S. Senate approved new cybersecurity legislation that will force critical infrastructure organizations to report cyber attacks to the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, or CISA, within 72 hours and ransomware payments within 24 hours. The Strengthening American Cybersecurity Act passed by unanimous consent on Tuesday after being introduced on February 8th by Senators Rob Portman and Gary Peters, ranking member and chairman of the Senate Homeland Security and Government Affairs Committee. The 200-page act includes several measures designed to modernize the federal government's cybersecurity posture, and both Peters and Portman said the legislation was quote-unquote urgently needed in light of the U.S. support of Ukraine, which was invaded by Russia last week. The act also authorizes the Federal Risk and Authorization Management Program, also called FedRAMP, for five years to ensure federal agencies can, quote, quickly and securely adopt cloud-based technologies that improve government operations and efficiency, unquote. The act attempts to streamline federal government cybersecurity laws to improve coordination between federal agencies and require all civilian agencies to report all attacks to CISA. It now heads to the House for a vote before it makes its way to President Biden's desk. So just another little facet of all the things (laughs) moving around cyber warfare, thanks to this aggression in Europe. All right, last article here before I get to the tips of the week. And I will admit this is kind of a long one, but it's, it's a good one in the sense that it's really important. And it's honestly, it's, it's just terrifying to me personally. So um, it's from the ACLU, the American Civil Liberties Union, and they wrote a paper on this. And I'm only going to read part of this. It's a, it's probably a seven or eight page paper. If this interests you at all, I recommend that you follow the show notes and go read the whole paper. There's a lot more here than, than what I'm going to cover, but I think I'm going to cover the most important parts. 
and, and you'll get the idea. So this is about a company called Flock, F-L-O-C-K. And uh, they have a product that uses artificial intelligence or AI uh, to take pictures of and follow license plates uh, of vehicles. And it's cloud-based and it's networked, so it's centralized so that it takes pictures of all the cars that go by, looks up all their license plates, and figures out whose car those license plates belong to. They track all these vehicles using these automatic license plate recognition cameras, or ALPR cameras. And this should start raising some red flags already in your brain, but let, let, me, uh, let me read an excerpt from this paper. And this will take me a little bit to get through, and I'll talk, talk about it at the back end, but um, this is important stuff. So, a new and rapidly growing surveillance company called Flock Safety is building a form of mass surveillance unlike any seen before in American life. The company is so far focused on selling automatic license plate recognition, ALPR, cameras to homeowner associations and other private parties, as well as to police departments. But it has done so through a business model that effectively enlists its customers into a giant centralized government surveillance network. And the company is aiming to expand its offerings beyond ALPR to traditional video surveillance, while also expanding its AI machine vision capabilities. In this paper, we look at this company's products, business model, and future aims, and how those embody some of the more worrisome trends in surveillance technology today. Flock is not the only company engaging in mass collection of ALPI data. Motorola Solutions and the company it acquired, Vigilant Solutions, also run a giant nationwide ALPI database and have recently made a bid to compete with Flock's strategy. But we focus here on Flock because it is a new up-and-coming company that industry analysts say is poised for major expansion both geographically and in the kinds of technology it provides. A startup founded in 2017, Flock has grown rapidly, riding two major trends in the security camera industry, a move to cloud services and video analytics. The company recently attracted $300 million in venture capital investments, which industry analysts say is, quote, unparalleled in the video surveillance industry, unquote, and will put the company, quote, in a position to expand aggressively over the next few years, unquote. The company makes grandiose claims about its mission, which it says is to, quote, eliminate nonviolent crime across the United States, unquote. Flock says its fixed cameras have been installed in 1,400 cities across the U.S. and photograph more than a billion vehicles every month. And its ambition is to expand to, quote, every single city in America, unquote. Flock also has a partnership with the body camera company Axon to provide mobile ALPR devices for police vehicles. Flock's cameras allow private customers like homeowner associations as well as police customers to create a record of the comings and goings of every vehicle that passes in front of the cameras. But the service goes well beyond that. It feeds that data into a centralized database run by Flock. As the company tells police, and this is apparently a quote from Flock uh, and maybe some of their literature, it says, quote, if you know the specific license plate in question, use Flock OS, and that's probably Flock operating system, to get a detailed report of the suspect vehicle's history over a given time frame. Use FlockOS's local and national search network to find the suspected vehicle across state lines, including up to 1 billion monthly plate reads. All this is included for free for any Flock safety customer, unquote. Flock not only allows private camera owners to create their own quote-unquote hot lists that will generate alarms when listed plates are spotted, but also runs all plates against state police watch lists and the FBI's primary criminal database, the National Crime Information Center, or the NCIC. When a camera scores a hit against one of those databases, law enforcement receives an immediate notification. As Flock CEO Garrett Langley explained in 2020, quote, 
We have a partnership through the FBI that we monitor all the cameras for about a quarter of a million devices that are known wanted. Either stolen, it's a warrant, it's an Amber Alert. And so at any given time, about 20 times an hour, we will notify local authorities. In January, we reported just over 67,000 wanted vehicles across the country, unquote. This giant surveillance network might also be used by immigration authorities to deport people, as in Motorola's private ALPR database. Asked by Vice News whether Flock could be used for such purposes, Langley said, quote, yes, if it is legal in a state, we would not be in a position to stop them, unquote, adding, quote, we give our customers the tools to decide and let them go from there, unquote. All of this means that those who purchase Flock cameras are effectively buying and installing surveillance devices, not just for themselves, but for the authorities as well, adding their cameras to a nationwide network searchable by the police. The closest thing to this model we have seen before is the doorbell camera company Ring, owned by Amazon now, which also raises many troubling issues. But Flock is working and enlisting its customers to work directly as an agent of law enforcement even more than Ring. It says it is quote-unquote, working with over 700 law enforcement agencies. This is another quote from Flock. They say, quote, At the end of the day, we view the police department as our actual end user. They're the only ones who can make an arrest. So neighborhoods, apartment complexes, motels, hotels, malls, hospitals, they may pay for the camera, but more often than not, the only ones that are actually looking at it are the police. Most of our software is actually running in the patrol vehicles. So if there's a crime or there's a stolen car that drives by, we're notifying the nearest officer, typically within the few seconds of when that happens, and they can turn on the blue lights and go get them, unquote. Go get them. That was, that was in the quote. Back to the article. As with Ring, police departments appear to be coordinating with Flock in ways that are unseemly for agencies serving the public. Vice reported that it obtained emails showing that, quote, Flock works closely with police to try and generate positive media coverage, improve their PR strategy, and bring more private cameras into the area, unquote. Flock has also helped write police press releases, Vice found, and officers appear in Flock promotional videos. Emails obtained by the Video Surveillance Industry Research Group, IPVM, show local Texas police referring homeowners associations and other neighborhood groups to Flock, advocating for the company at community meetings, providing the company with neighborhood contact lists, and introducing other police chiefs to company sales managers. The company has run into trouble for pushing police departments to embrace its technology without getting the approval of the communities those departments serve. It has also created conflict in some communities where its cameras have been proposed or adopted and sparked well-founded concerns that the technology might have a disproportionate effect on communities of color and other vulnerable communities. When a neighborhood association buys a flock camera, it is basically contributing a piece of equipment to a new nationwide law enforcement surveillance infrastructure that, as Slate puts it, means even, quote, small-town police departments can suddenly afford to conduct surveillance at a massive scale, unquote. Flock can gather the information captured by its cameras around the country into its own centralized database because it is a cloud-based service provider rather than a mere seller of hardware. That database is available to more than 500 U.S. police departments. As a business matter, this allows the company to benefit from self-reinforcing network effects. And if Flock cameras become as widespread and densely placed as the company hopes, law enforcement will gain the ability to know the detailed movements of virtually any vehicle for as far into the past as that data is held. This would create enormous risks of privacy violations and other abuses and would have significant legal implications as well. 
and the risk of abuse by government is all too real. Unfortunately, this country has a long tradition extending to the present of law enforcement targeting people not because they're suspected of criminal activity, but because of their political or religious beliefs or race. That includes quasi-private surveillance. There are also many documented instances of individual officers abusing police databases, including ALPR databases. We have long had concerns, and we being ACLU here, about the dangers posed by hybrid public-private surveillance practices, but Flock threatens to take that to a new level. In the past, we have noted that distributed private surveillance cameras are less of a threat to civil liberties than centralized surveillance networks, but also warned that if all those private cameras were connected to a cloud, the effect would be to re-centralize them. By pulling all the data recorded by its customers, including its police customers, into its own centralized servers, Flock not only creates an enormously powerful private-public machine sweeping up data on Americans' activities, but also puts itself at that machine's center. It's bad enough when law enforcement engages in such mass surveillance, but to have such data flowing through a private company creates an additional set of incentives for abuse. For one thing, there are no checks and balances on the use of this database. The lack of proper checks on the behavior of law enforcement is well established, and studies suggest improper use of ALPR in particular may be widespread. Nor are there adequate checks on Flock. The company says it only keeps ALPR data for 30 days, but no laws require them to honor that promise. The company controls an enormous data set that could probably be monetized in various ways. And while the company is growing fast now, boom times never last forever. What will future managers do if the company hits tough times? The spotlight has moved on from their controversial role, and they're tempted to reach for revenue they're flushing out of their databases every 30 days. How might they use their tool against competitors? Or against workers, say, if they find themselves fighting a union battle? Of course, the authorities in the company are not the only possible sources of abuse. There are plenty of reasons to worry about nosy homeowner association board members and the like using this tool to snoop on the comings and goings of their neighbors and their neighbors' friends, family, lovers, etc. Neighborhood administrators are not subject to even training and oversight, as is applied to the police, and generally don't know how to impose access restrictions even if they think of doing so. It is true that all vehicles are required to display license plates, and in our past work on ALPRs, we have written that license plate readers would pose few civil liberties risks if they only checked plates against legitimate hot lists, and those hot lists were implemented soundly. But we also noted that a proliferation of cameras and widespread sharing allow for the creation of intrusive records of our comings and goings, create chilling effects, and open the door to abusive tracking. And the scale of what Flock is doing goes far beyond what was contemplated when ALPRs first arrived on the scenes. Okay, this this thing goes on and and says more things, but I think that should give you an idea of the problem here. And this is what we get when we don't have privacy regulations in place. We are in a capitalist society and we have cameras everywhere. And there are people figuring out that, hey, if we took what all these cameras are seeing, we could find new and interesting ways to make money off of that. And these guys are basically wanting to put these cameras everywhere and they're either getting police to pay for them or they're getting homeowners associations or apartment complexes or, you know, resorts and, you know, any place that might want to track comings and goings of people, airports, you know, whatever, any place you might want to see a lot of traffic and you might want to know who's coming and going. They're selling these devices and, and in some cases, apparently having police organizations help push for the sale of these devices, just like they were doing for the ring video doorbells to, to sell these devices for flock and get more of them out there. And, and the more of them that are out there, the more they can track. I mean, every car has to have a license plate, including yours. And so when you're driving around any place where you drive in a public space, 
that might go buy one of these cameras, this thing will log your license plate number. Now, according to them, currently, they only keep this data for 30 days. And supposedly, if they read your license plate properly and didn't get a weird sun gleam off of it that made it read the number wrong, or there's dirt or a smudge or something on your license plate that caused it to get the wrong number, or it was at a funky angle, and the AI software misbehaved and came up with the wrong uh, string of characters and numbers that was your license plate, if that number, whatever it read, is in a hot list database somewhere of a stolen car or belonging to somebody of interest or an Amber Alert person or whatever, then that is immediately reported to local law enforcement. But my understanding is that these homeowners associations can also use it for their own purposes. If there's some kid who's constantly, you know, drag racing up and down your main street in your neighborhood and you want to keep them out and you want the, the cops to be notified, you can add that license plate once you get it to the list. And whenever it comes through, you can, they can catch this guy. But I mean, <laughs> that could be used for anything. And yeah, I mean, if I wanted to know who's coming and going, maybe, uh, you know, I'm on the homeowner's board and, you know, I've got a neighbor that I want to snoop on. And we had a really nosy neighbor in my neighborhood. It was, if you ever, <laughs> if you're old enough to know what Bewitched, the TV show was, and you know about Mrs. Kravitz, she was the nosy neighbor who like had binoculars, was looking out her window and, you know, all the comings and goings and things happening in her neighborhood that she could th see through her window. She was a busybody. We had somebody like that in our neighborhood. I mean, it was somebody went into her basement once for some reason and found on her wall a map, a huge map of the entire neighborhood with all these interesting data points written on houses. Anyway, <laughs> she ran for our homeowners voter association. And I can only imagine what somebody like that would do with information like this. But that's even that's just local. The problem is these systems, while being sold to local people and local organizations for local use are all networked back together and storing all this data in the cloud and also sharing that information with police and law enforcement and FBI and intelligence agencies and who knows who else. Now, look, I, I get it. This, this could be a real boon for law enforcement, but there's got to be guardrails on this stuff or it will be abused. I mean, if nothing else, I mean, let, let's say we, we trust our law enforcement and we trust our local uh, in, in intelligence agencies to use this stuff properly. That data is still just sitting there to be hacked and used by foreign governments or hackers. So even if you think that your country is one of the good guys, can you imagine what would happen if China or Russia or North Korea or Iran or one of these other repressive regimes would do with this sort of information? Not just in their own country, but what if in ours? What if some of these spies wanted to see where our people were going, our politicians, our government officials, suspected spies? And then what if this system that's currently only looking at license plates starts looking at faces. Clearview AI claims to be able to identify almost anybody on the planet today with all the pictures of faces that they have in their database. Now, this company has also said that it's working on things called vehicle fingerprinting, meaning that it's not just looking at license plates, it's looking at like the make and the model and the color and you know interesting things like uh, something, a roof rack or you know a bike rack on the back or, and they said this, bumper stickers. So what if I could all of a sudden track and locate all the cars in the last 30 days with a particular political or religious or minority group sticker on the bumper? And, and just to bring this full circle, what if such a system was available broadly in a country like Ukraine and that data for 30 days, even just 30 days, was available uh, and also the network was there to capture in real time this data and all of a sudden your government is overthrown by a hostile government and now has this wonderful, massive surveillance network at its fingertips.
Now, what if the country in question was your country? What if all of a sudden your government decides it wanted to use this system for its own purposes? And maybe they tell you about it and maybe they don't. So anyway, if you're interested in all this, read the whole article, but I think I covered most of it. So anyway, that might keep you up and I, I, I know it's going to bother me. All right, let's, let's move away from that. Let's go to something you can control, and that is de-googling your life. So I've had two parts to this series so far, and I've covered various steps in you know, things like your search engine, your mobile operating system, your email, your calendar, uh, and things like that. And I've got more things that I'll be covering in the future. But uh, as it turns out, I was just interviewed by the Malwarebytes Lock and Code podcast run by David Reese, who I've known for years. I knew him back when he was at the EFF, and he's been on my show several times. And I've been on his show once before prior to this, last last summer, I think. He and I were talking about doing another interview swap. He's going to be coming on my show at some point. But I've already gone on his show. He's interviewed me, uh, and it will be coming out, I think, the next week or two. Uh, he wanted to know about my de-Google strategy. He wanted me to talk about that. And as, as I was preparing for that interview, I realized that there's, you know, while I've gone through step one, two, three, and four, and maybe five so far in my two parts of the series, I really missed a step zero. And that step zero is reconnaissance. You need to figure out what your exposures are. You need to understand what Google products and services that you personally interact with that you may need to work on that you you might want to drop or at least neuter. So I'm going to talk about that in our tips of the week today. First of all, you should make yourself aware of Google's privacy settings. And luckily, and I'm pretty sure this is because of regulatory frameworks like the GDPR and the European Union and California's CCPA, Google has created some actually some really nice tools to help you tweak the settings and knobs uh, on your Google privacy stuff. So they have this thing called a Google privacy checkup. And there's a link to this in the show notes. This is one of the few links that I don't think there's a handy, short, memorable thing to, but it's myaccount.google.com. And if you go there, this is your general Google everything. This is kind of the centerpiece of all your Google world. On there is a thing called privacy checkup. And again, there's a link in the show notes if you want to click that. If you can't find it, it'll take you right there. And then Google, helpfully, walks you through all the main you know, switches and knobs and things that you can do to control how much information that you share with Google. And this will do a couple things. First of all, it will make you understand all the different places that Google is tracking you, things that I am sure you had not considered or forgotten about. But as you go through this, realize this is Google's tool, and they're going to use all these dark patterns, all these euphemistic expressions to make it sound benign. Uh, or even beneficial for you, because that's what they're claiming this is all for. This is all for your quote-unquote enhanced experience, uh, or to make better recommendations, or personalized ads. It's all about your comfort. It's all about making the experience better for you. All of those things mean that they are tracking you and maintaining a history on you. Google is an advertising company. 90% of their revenue comes from marketing and advertising. That is why their products are mostly free, because you your data in particular, the ability to show you ads based on that is how they make money. So as you're going through this, keep track of those things that you're doing there. There's, you know, there, there are things there that you can check and uncheck. Basically, I'm going to tell you now that you should uncheck all of them. You should, you know, not want an enhanced experience. You should not want them tracking you and turn off as many of those things as you can to enhance your privacy as best you can within the Google ecosystem. Now, the next thing you want to do is you want to know what information Google already has on you. 
And for this, they've got another nice little tool uh, called Takeout. And so if you go to Takeout, that's Takeout, the two words all together, uh, .google.com, it will take you through another list. And I guarantee that this will raise your eyebrows and possibly drop your jaw. When you see all the different categories of data that Google has on you currently. So you can do two things when you go to this list at takeout.google.com. Uh, first of all, you can download a copy of the information that they have on you. And my guess is this is probably just the raw data. I seriously doubt they're going to also let you download all the, all the inferences that they have made based on that data but you can at least download the raw data. Now, obviously some of these things are going to be like your emails, like forever, like every Gmail you've ever sent or received is part of this data. You don't necessarily need to download that, but you might want to download some of the rest of it and poke through it. because <laughs> I'm sure you will be shocked, but you also at this point have the opportunity to tell Google to delete it. Now you can tell it to auto delete after a certain amount of time if you want. And I'm sure they're hoping you'll do that. And I think they usually have two time windows. You can do like 18 months or three months. Uh, but I'm telling you now, you should just delete it all right now. And then while you're in there, tell them to stop collecting it in the future. Now, for me, when I did this, it was totally empty that it had no data because I had gone through and done this a long time ago. So I actually had to go to somebody else and I said, hey, can, can we do a screen share? Uh, I, I want to look and see what you see when you go to this thing, because when I go there, it's nothing. So I actually, in order to see any data, we had to go and, and look at their account because they hadn't done this yet. And they were shocked at some of the things that they found when we were going through this. They just had no idea that, you know, that this was being collected. So uh, my guess is you will see the same. And so finally, there's one more thing that for some reason is even beyond the takeout. There's even yet more data because Google separates this into a whole different category. And it's called activity, your activity history. Uh, so for this one, you want to go to my activity, all one word, myactivity.google.com. And again, they're going to, I think that it says right on the page that, you know, this info quote helps make Google services more useful for you, unquote. But again, this is all about tracking. This is them trying to convince you to, to let them keep doing this. And I'm telling you that you should not. Now, if Google was a quote unquote data fiduciary, if we knew for a fact, if, or if better yet, if they were legally required to do so under penalty of massive fines, or jail time or whatever, that they were only allowed to use this data for your personal benefit and nobody else's benefit, including their own, then yeah, great. <laughs> that'd, that'd be nice. I, I would consider doing that. That is not the case. So I would recommend again, that in all these cases, as you're using all these tools and going through this, that you stop all data collection, delete all existing data after you've taken a look at it and have them stop tracking all your activity and turn all the privacy knobs up to 11. And as you're doing this, this is the basis for you creating your own personal Google to-do list. So this should give you a much better idea of all the different ways you are and have been, perhaps without realizing it, interacting with Google. And that's going to include things that don't have Google in the name, like YouTube, Waze, Nest, Fitbit, the Stadia game consoles, Chrome browser, Chromebook, if you own one, all those kind of things, those are all Google too. And as you're doing this and making your list, I would prioritize this list from easiest to hardest, go for the low hanging fruit and then work your way up. It will give you a sense of accomplishment. It will kind of let you knock off the easy stuff quickly. And then you can kind of work at the harder stuff, you know, as time goes by and you don't know, give yourself plenty of time to do this. I mean, how long have you been using these products years, right? So, you know, you've hopefully at this point, you've already stopped the flow of information. So now it's just a matter of you going back and deciding which of these products I want to stop using in, entirely and replace them with something that's privacy preserving. 
And at that point, you can come back and look at my two articles on my blog about this, uh, or go back and listen to the podcast where I talk about this. One last thing, uh, when you do the Google privacy checkup, when you're done with that, it will offer to run you through the Google security checkup, which is different. As long as you're there, go ahead and run that too. Why not? So there you go. There's the news and your tips of the week. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening in. We're already kind of at the one hour mark, so I'm going to make this quick. But for the next month, for the month of March, I'm going to be running a big promotion to celebrate the fifth anniversary of the podcast. And I'm going to be giving away a bunch of stuff. I've talked to some of the people that I've worked with in the past, some products that I really like and support, and they have generously offered to throw in some free coupons and stuff for you guys. I'm not going to get all the details here, but if you go to the most recent blog article, probably on my website, Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons, or if you click on the link for that in the show notes, it will take you to an article laying out all the wonderful prizes that I'll be giving away. But just to give you a taste, my publisher, A Press, has given me a bunch of fun books that I'm going to throw into the top prize package because they're really heavy to ship. So I'm just going to put them all in one big package and send them. Uh, Start page is throwing in a t-shirt and a bunch of subscriptions. Priv, the great guys who make that really cool app, uh, has thrown in some pro upgrades that I'm going to give away. Malwarebytes is giving away a bunch of licenses for their antivirus software. Proton Mail is supposed to be getting me some subscriptions as well. And I've got some ones from FastMail as well. And of course, as part of this, I'm going to be giving away some free copies of my book, either PDF copies of my book for a lot of people or some of the top prize winners will get signed physical copies of the book. And yes, I'm even going to throw in some of my super cool security enhancing challenge coins. So lots of great free services I'm going to be giving away. All the details will be found in the article. And I'll be talking more about this over the week. Uh, but right now, actually, as, as of this recording, I am still putting together all the details into a nice little giveaway promotion. Uh, and so uh, all that will appear on my blog. And there will be a link in the show notes for how to get to that. And coming up next week, I've got a really interesting interview with somebody from Microsoft on their Pluton initiative, which is all about secure computing stuff. And I also did a really, really fun interview with Henry from TechLore. TechLore does some really great stuff. They do a lot of wonderful YouTube videos about privacy uh, that you should definitely check out. I'll put a link to the show notes uh, to TechLore. But coming up, I'll be doing an interview with Henry, and then I'm actually going to be going on his show, too. I've, For some reason recently, I just had this notion of doing a lot of cross-podcast stuff, and, and so I'm actually going to be exchanging interviews with a lot of people. So you'll see that stuff coming up here really soon. But I've already got a really great interview uh, in the can, as they say, uh, recorded with Henry from TechLore, and that's going to be a lot of fun. That'll be coming up soon. I'm also going to be doing a really cool interview on cryptocurrency, and we'll talk about NFTs and why there's such a big deal with cryptocurrency and how much energy it uses. And we'll probably talk some more about the GPUs and all that stuff. That'll be a really interesting interview. Uh, all that's coming up on the horizon. So if you haven't already, for some strange reason, go ahead and subscribe to the podcast. That way you will absolutely get all these things as they come down the pike. You won't want to miss any of these. They're really going to be a lot of fun. For my patrons out there, I've got some great bonus content coming for you as well. If you want to become a patron, go to patreon.com and search on Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. There's a link, of course, in the show notes. You can interact with me directly on Discord and ask me questions whenever you like. And there's some other great benefits for being a patron, and I keep adding more, so check that out. All right, everybody. 
Take care out there. Stay safe. And until next week, as always, don't get caught with your drawbridge down.